welcome to Inspiring Futures. I'm your host, Ed Cotton. This is a podcast where we talk about the how, what, and why of the future. Welcome to the latest episode of Inspiring Futures. Um, my guest today, all the way from Chicago, is Rashid uh, Tabakawala, um, who you're for, you were formerly the chief growth officer. Was that your time? The chief there? strategist and chief, chief growth chief officer of Publicis, yes, Publicis. both of them. Yeah, and um, is now an author, consultant, how would you describe yourself? I'd say I'm an author, advisor, speaker. Those are the three things that I do. Yeah. Um, with, a, with, a, with a book that came out at the beginning of the year, is that? January, yes. Came out in January. Um, so I've got a lot. I, I, th- I always like starting these conversations with, you know, just um, making sure the context set. Um, so if you could give a sort of a very accelerated uh, resume, um, I call it like the 90-second resume. Sure. Um, where you started and how you got to where you are today, kind of in a very fast forward manner. Absolutely. So very quickly, I grew up in Bombay, India, and I spent all my first 21 years there, including getting an undergraduate degree in mathematics. Uh, I came to the University of Chicago to get an MBA. I joined a company called Leo Burnett, the advertising agency, and I ended up spending 38 years in that company, though the last time my business card said Leo Burnett was 1995, which is 25 years ago, because I set up new companies and then the company got purchased by a big French holding company called the Publicis Group. And I played many roles, including chairing a lot of the digital assets like Digitas and Razorfish. And for the last five, six years was on the board or the direct as they called it. And served roles as the chief growth officer as well as the chief strategist. Um, About 18 months ago, I left Publicis, but I remained an advisor. So I continue to have, uh, and a real advisor, I continue to retain an office, email, and I basically am available for clients. I emcee all of our executive training programs, and I actually run an internal podcast. I'm the host of an internal podcast called What Next? in order to start my next career, which is the speaker, writer, advisor. And the idea was to basically have a second career where I continue to love to do what I did, but no longer have a boss or a client or an employee. Yeah. So that's brought me to where I am. So um, when you, um, well, a couple of questions. What was it like, you remember back coming from, Um, Mumbai to the United States what was that experience like so it it was a it was a experience that I will never forget because it was an experience that was simultaneously exhilarating and terrifying Um, it was exhilarating in the fact that I had never seen so much abundance or so many big things or so many things so clean uh, coming from India you know a grocery store to this day 40 years later still fascinates me because of all the choices Um, and the general abundance, all of that was exhilarating. 
what was terrifying was I did not know that you could speak without knowing what you were saying. Mm-hmm. And, and therefore I was like, completely convinced that I was the dumbest person in my class because everybody had a point of view and I didn't know enough to have a point of view, but then I didn't realize over time, neither did they, but they had a point of view. Uh, And there was other things like winter in Chicago, which was pretty terrifying and the lack of any food that had any spice till I discovered Tabasco sauce. So, you know, it was both uh, good and bad and, uh, Overall, definitely good, and I spent the rest of my life in the United States. Yeah. So, um, was it what made the decision for you to to go into the advertising business? So there were a couple of reasons that I entered the advertising or the broad the marketing business. Um, what I liked was uh, strategy, and I also liked the arts and culture. And I sort of decided where strategy and arts and culture intersected was in the world of marketing. And so I said, I'm going to work in the world of marketing. And uh, in the 80s, or 1980, when I, 1982, when I got my job, the Leo Burnett Company was the number one advertising agency in the United States. Uh, It operated from one single office in Chicago. It didn't operate in New York. Uh, It was privately held. and it only worked for 32 clients, but every one of the clients were the who's who of America from Philip Morris to Kellogg's to McDonald's. Um, and they offered to hire me despite the fact that I had no green card. They waived their rules. And so it was a combination of uh, that being the only job that I actually got because almost everybody else refused to interview me because I was an immigrant. Uh, And so I said, okay, great. I like this company and they're willing to interview me. And I got a job and I said, I'm staying here for a couple of years. I'll get my green card and off I go. And uh, I spent my entire career there. Wow. So the the world you walked into in Leah Burnett um, back then was uh, a world where the agency was very much the trusted partner of these big clients. Yeah, in the yeah. Sort of uh, Leo Burnett way, and there was, a, a, you know, as you said, you had these, you had these big clients and these deep, historic relationships with many of them. It was a, it was a very different, a very different world. It was, it was a very different world. It was basically a world, and it's hard to believe. And you know, Leo Burnett, while it continues to do well, has not retained the cachet that at that time, you had, literally. In finance, there was Goldman Sachs. In consulting, there was McKinsey. And in advertising, there was Leo Burnett. Mm-hmm. And they were held in the same you know, regard. And um, the first decade of my career, I literally was the junior partner of our clients. We were, we were partners. We were clearly the junior partner, but we were not a vendor or a supplier. We were treated differently. Mm-hmm. Um, I would spend a day every week at Procter & Gamble when I worked at Procter & Gamble, working with the brand manager in their offices. Uh, and the compensation system was not something we negotiated every 15 minutes. It was relatively open and fair, which was basically you get 15% of the spending and just just not bother about other things. And when the spending goes 
to nothing, you still work, but you don't get paid. And when it goes up a lot, you get paid a lot. Uh, and in many ways, um, it was a world that was simpler, easier, but it changed. And it changed for a variety of reasons. Uh, the three biggest reasons it changed was uh, because of inflation, 15% of inflated media costs became too much. And so procurement said, let's go to a different compensation system. And the compensation system that seemed fair was a fee-based system. But eventually the fee-based system uh, led to not investing. Neither the agency nor the client would invest in the relationship because it, then it moved to a transactional relationship. The second was fragmentation of media, which therefore led to eventually fragmentation of the full service agency into smaller units and agencies like the media companies and the creative agencies. And I helped do that. I helped launch the digital agencies. I helped work a different combination of media companies. Um, and those were things that allowed actually both the client to get better service and the agency to give more scale services and profits. So the fragmentation actually helped both sides for a few years. Uh, Till at some particular stage, it became so complicated. And because of digital, it was hard to disconnect what used to need to be connected. You know, as I explained to people, when you're at someone's website, is that a media, creative, digital, what is it? It's an experience, which is part of overall marketing. Who's responsible for it? How fragment can you make it? So it became a different world. And then somewhere along the agency ecosystem lost the client's trust. I mean, five years ago, they launched detective agencies against, you know, to, to look at that. Now we're getting some of it back because part of it is not necessarily because we have earned all of it back. We are working our way to that. But because of the people that they ended up trusting turned out to be more transactional and somewhat questionable, mm -hmm. uh, as we've most recently seen with the platforms, you know, yeah. Um, and so it was like, well, it's interesting that these folks who have been with us all these years, actually, this is us agencies, depend on clients for our income. Everybody else squeezes the client of all their margin. Yeah. And their basic belief is these people actually work for us. And the other people extract money from us in auctions that we do not actually understand. Yeah, no, that's really interesting. I mean, I, I, I was I was at McCann for right. a long time, and uh, I, I feel that the beginnings were very similar. We used to have uh, in, in the lobby in London, our, our clients would be literally bricks in the wall. Yeah, um, you know, we'd worked with Exxon Mobil. That was our founding client. It was a hundred Standard Oil. Yeah, and McCann was founded on the on the on the back of that, an in-house copywriter. Um, so yeah, the 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 longevity and the and the span of those relationships, uh, you know, were huge. And um, you know, I was there when um, Sergio Zeman, um, you know, started uh, unbundling all the McCann relationships. You know, yeah. Um, yeah. And, and, and it uh, became very unwieldy because eventually, what happened is the whole thing was right for that decade. But over time, marketers lost control of marketing. Yeah, It moved to the CFO's office through procurement. 
Yeah, no, that's really that's that's really interesting, and I, and I, I think I, you know, your point about this um, little bit of a swing back, you know, to uh, a little bit of a swing back to agencies, um, obviously with a number of caveats, but um, you know, I think the the interesting. I remember being at an ANA about six or seven years ago, listening to a, a panel of CMOs, um, and, and they were all sort of patting each other on the back and 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 generally, you know, saying, you know what. I don't waste any of my time in Madison Avenue anymore. You know where I'm at? Silicon Valley. Correct. That's the most creative and interesting place in America. And that's where you need to be. The agencies are defunct. They're devoid of ideas. Yes. And I think that has moved. Uh, and right now, in fact, there are three big issues that most CMOs face. Uh, the first one is that they no longer have a seat in the boardroom mm. because they failed to explain, not they all failed, but many of them failed to understand that the disruption was to their business and not to the agency business, right? That, that these companies, as the travel industry figured out when Google started hemorrhaging travel, even though travel was the biggest advertiser on Google, that a trillion dollar company doesn't make the next trillion dollars by coming after a small industry called advertising. Right. They go after the big guys. Right, uh, healthcare and finance and education. Um, so that was number one. The second is because they were actually more conflicted than most people did, because I began to notice that for every talented person, the agency lost to the platforms, the client lost too. And in many ways, you began to see many CMOs get their next job at the platforms. Yeah. And so people were wondering, were they actually funding their future jobs or they were looking after their existing jobs? Yeah. Now, many of them were looking after their existing jobs, but enough were doing what I thought were questionable calls, yeah. right? Because they would not call out bad behavior at the platforms because yeah. the bad behavior at the platforms, if they call them out, their future jobs might be at risk. Fascinating, yeah, so true. So those things have changed now. Those things have changed. Yeah. And, and, and the boards have woken up and the boards are paying attention. So what interests me about your book is um, you sort of started an agency that, as you said, you know, I thought very insightfully that this idea of um, strategy and art, you know, yes. you know um, I think Aaliyah Burnett has, you know, a place where it came up with some of the world's most famous jingles or taglines or, they, they really they really knew how to brand in in, in terms of the cultural consciousness so yes. they made mcdonald's iconic you know they the work they, they did you know they, they, they were the people behind the marlboro cowboy exactly. and you know between, building icons yeah, building snap crackle right and their whole stuff was like forever brands you know the whole yeah. idea was forever brands and and it was a combination of relevance and likability which were the two yeah. things that they talked about and one thing I always have remembered from Leo Burnett, though I never worked with the man because he was unfortunately dead before I got there, but what, you know, his sayings and his videotapes, et cetera, um, was market leaders own the category benefit. Yeah. And, and so he figured out what a category benefit was. And if the category benefit was freshness, he put together a green giant for the can. Yeah, uh, and it was it was absolutely amazing how it was so much of insight, which is strategy, 
but then brought together with the world of art. And, mm-hmm. and you know, fundamentally my book, the, the title that I had originally proposed for the book, which HarperCollins basically said was not good enough. And I said, that was fine. So I said, okay, put it into research, which they did. And they proved to me it was mm-hmm. a good, but not good enough. Um, it was called The Story and the Spreadsheet. Mm-hmm. That was my original title. And if you read, and if you, as you've read the book, the, the term story and the spreadsheet is throughout the book because that was the original concept. And the folks at Harper College loved the concept, but they said we preferred this title. And they did the research and they showed that the title was a better title. Uh, which turned out to be, and that's the art and science of it. Well, so I, I think what, what fascinates me is your argument, having seen and been part of that world where where art and strategy fused together to create an emotional, to build communication that creates an emotional bond with its audience. Yeah. Um, to a world of where we're dominated by digital and um uh you know we've got a predominance of left brain thinking yeah and and and, you know i'm fascinated in this idea of um you know they say that steve you know when steve jobs was at apple in the early days um silicon valley and investors wanted him out they didn't want, he, he was such a misfit. He, he was too creative. He was too wild. He was too unpredictable to fit within the culture that people wanted. And everyone like, everyone, everyone like, you know, nowadays says, oh yeah, he's a genius. He was a maverick. He was great. But if you, if you talk to people at the time and you look back, uh, you know, he was, he, was, he was mad in the eyes of many people and who, wanted, who wanted him out. And what fascinates me is this, the natural inclination for a lot of organizations is is to be left brain is to defer to logic yeah and 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 i build a case why why logic is important that is not what makes people successful and i come at it from three perspectives which are unusual so the first perspective is i have an advanced degree in mathematics so i am not anti logic or anti data uh, second, I have been one of the people responsible for driving a lot of our data and digital assets across the group. Mm-hmm. So I'm not anti-digital or anti that in that form. Uh, and the third is when I speak, I speak with what seems to be precise logic and rationale. So the what people find surprising is someone who's data-driven, math-trained, and logical basically says that's necessary but not sufficient to succeed. And I point out to the people the following three facts, and I believe these are three facts. So these are not like three things, right? So fact number one is uh, a person in two different moods is more different than two different people. Yeah. Which basically means that Data is a zero or one thing, and therefore, but analog human beings are maybe, could be, should be. So that's number one. Number two is because of that, we choose with our hearts and we use numbers to justify what we just did. Mm-hmm. And if that was not true, then any client who has 
a expensive car, expensive watch, expensive wardrobe has basically told me that he basically doesn't believe in data because he just made every decision he's made or she's made has not been a data-driven decision, including having children. Mm -hmm. So that seems to be interesting. Yeah. But the third, and this one is the one that actually wakes them up the most, is two different concepts. One is that data is like electricity. Without it, you can't compete. But tell me which companies separate themselves from their use of electricity. Mm -hmm. But the fact is, they themselves, if they believe so much on data, are going to increasingly become irrelevant because AI can do a better job. And my belief is, if it's a number, why, do you, why are you necessary? Why should anybody pay you? Yeah. What you bring is judgment, which basically means you harness the number in completely different ways. So you've just proved to me that your job is exactly the opposite of what you claim. And that finishes that conversation. Let me move on to real life. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it, it, the, the, the thing, you know, what's interesting to me is it, it, when you look at America and you look at corporate culture and you look at um, logic, there's, there's just, it's a big country. It's, it, logistics is a huge part. If you don't have the quarter pounders in McDonald's that day, you can't sell a quarter pounder. So the trains have to run on time. There's a massive infrastructure that needs to happen uh, to, to make all this work, right? Exactly. And that, that becomes kind of predominant. Um, and, you know, you did, what, what happens to me, what in my mind happens is, even if you looked at a McDonald's or another Chicago company, um, Kellogg. Yeah they start off with these visionary human founders who are very much about sort of art and vision. And then they scale because they get big and they, that maybe they struck an emotional chord or they struck the zeitgeist, you know, McDonald's expands on the back of, you know, America's love of the automobile. And, you know, suddenly, and as people drive and can drive, they want consistency and McDonald's offers that. And so they, 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 they find themselves everywhere. Then they, then they flip. Then the whole business becomes about getting the product to people at the places on time. And then the founder dies or whatever. There's no real successor. And then the brand is really in the hands of the committee. And there is, yep. no, and there is no visionary. And, and yeah. I think, see, this is a, a story that just keeps repeating itself. And it doesn't matter whether you're talking about a company that's 100 years old or whether you're talking about a company that's five years old. I mean, even the kind of the, the great DTC companies that we're, we're looking at, the Airbnbs, or they ultimately have a time where the, the founders, the, the visionary founders will step aside or move aside. And, and they, they don't have that, or that, that momentum or that, that, that human vision uh, to guide them. And it becomes... A job of a committee. It, it, it does. And the biggest thing that takes place, building on what you've just said, is the original founding founders or the initial age focused on the external world and unmet needs. Yeah. And over time, you begin to view the entire world through the frame of your brand and organization. So you no longer see people as people, you see people as consumers. And the more you see people as consumers, you look and you interrelate with them through the lens of your brand. 
So, you know, a terrific company that doesn't do this, they don't do this, but if they did this, they would not be a terrific company. But if you look at some, a company like P&G, which, you know, has a massive amount of brands, if they only looked at the world through their brand lens, the only thing they would understand about people is their dirt removal habits. Yeah. Because every product at P&G does one thing, it removes dirt, yeah. right? They don't do that. If they only looked at things through the dirt removal habits, they would not be a successful company. But too many companies just view everything through the lens of the brand. So they lose that. And the second big shock that most people don't realize is because of the way the world is changing today, the likelihood of your competitor coming from your category is almost zero now. Your future competitors come from outside your category. So when you become brand fixated and category fixated, you lose concept of your competitors and you lose concept of your consumers. Outside of that, everything is fine. Mm. So we have a we have a very fascinating case emerging right now as uh, Apple moves into the automobile market. Yeah. Um, what what are your what are your thoughts on that? That's that's a, that's a kind of a radical shift with a, of, of one of the best loves, love brands up against um, Tesla, another brand that's come from nowhere. So, um, I mean, I've, I've read like you have, and assuming that is true, there is a rational case for it. And then there is, you know, uh, there's some real challenges. So sure. the rational case for it is when you are a $2 trillion, $2 trillion market cap company, <clears throat> there are only four categories that you can go right. into, right? right? You can go into education, you can go into finance, you can go into health, and you can go into auto. Mm -hmm. And in some small ways, they've got into every one of them, but in a plain, plain way. They've got a little bit into finance, but I think they've decided they're behind there with this, you know, if you look at the ecosystem of the squares, the levitates, and the stripes. Um, myself says education is too unwieldy because of unions, so yeah. they've decided not to go there. That basically leaves healthcare, and they've tried that, obviously, with a lot of some of their Apple devices, but that is too controversial at some particular stage and also goes into it. So they've sort of said, okay, where can we go in? It's just like auto. And they would not have gone into auto, I think, until a couple of years ago, and or especially the last year which is when Tesla began to show that you could actually have market valuations at technology prices mm. because everybody else has had market valuation and metal bending prices. Yeah. Uh, then they begin to say, okay, this makes sense because they also have to be very careful. Fortunately, Apple, while it's got a high multiple, has nowhere like the multiple of some of these cloud-based companies, right? but they can't get into industries where every dollar is valued less. And now they figured out because of Tesla, they can. Now the question is whether they will partner with Tesla. I think you saw today or yesterday that Elon Musk actually tried to sell them Tesla, you know, probably when it was worth one-tenth of what it's worth, you know, mm -hmm. today, uh, but they were not interested in taking a meeting. So they may partner with Tesla or they may partner with one of these, you know, new, the Chinese companies, which is also very possible because China is their second largest market, uh, you know, with the Neo or something of the sort. Uh, or they may, I think today, I heard partner with a Volkswagen, right? And if you actually look at VW, they have uh, some, you know, interesting, the Germans have put together a conglomeration. 
And if you actually think about where you would see Apple link up with a car company, right? It would be the German car companies. And all the German car companies have actually working together. I think most people don't realize yeah. that VW owns Porsche and yeah. Mercedes and BMW, those three all work together. Yeah. Uh, and you could basically see an Apple, BMW, Apple, Mercedes, Apple, Porsche. Very interesting, yeah. Yeah. So um, going back to this, this idea of soul and we, we started, we started with this idea of art and science or art and strategy. And now it seems that the soul is actually about something. It's still human, um, but it's about something different. It's about goodness and purpose and and empathy and and things that are actually you know back in the day back in the 50s or back in the madman era um it it was all products are basically the same go to the dream factory ad agency try to make some kind of like make it make a make a find a benefit um and, and use advertising to create that differentiation because products uh, aren't different. And now we've kind of gone sort of full circle a little bit back to this point where actually you've got a lot of these companies who have tried to make different products. You know, look at the beer market. There has never been more difference in beer, you know, with the with every craft brewery producing something yep. different. We've got overchoice in, in, in beer. It's actually you know, really complicated. Um, and so you've got these, these, these swings that are, brands have moved around within culture. And now you've got this other swing, which is into, okay, it's not about what you make, it's about how you make it and what you do and how you treat the people who you work for you and how you treat the world around you. And that's now become a, I mean, an absolutely critical part of, yes. of, of, of the world. And I mean, I was talking to somebody yesterday, I was doing another podcast and they were asking me, well, you know, what do you think the biggest issue for brands is? And I said, there isn't a brand in the world that hasn't got something they don't want people to know about, you know, and even you can, you can look at every single one of those, you know, from the Amazons to the apples, to the Teslas. I mean, Tesla, for example, fascinates me because they have a massive factory in Nevada. They don't pay taxes. They get ER, their local ER gets six or seven calls to their gigafactory a week. They're not paying taxes. So there's this really interesting um, idea of what point, how, how much equity do you have to build in your brand um, before it's something happens that starts to slap you in the face? I think it's, it's going to happen very fast to a lot of companies. So I wrote a piece called the new ESG. So, you know, in addition to the newsletter, I write a blog and there's some places I've just put on the blog. Um, and the new ESG is, well, the existing ESG, which is still very important, the E stands for environment and the S stands for social and the G stands for governance. Yeah. 
in the new ESG, the E stands for employee, the S stands for society, and the G stands for government, mm-hmm. right? To your point, number one is if you cannot look after your employees, don't talk to me about purpose, values, and soul. That's number one. Number two is every company, regardless of how good it is, happens to have secondary effects, which may not be that good for society. So in effect, acknowledge those and try to fix that. It's almost like a carbon tax, right? And the third is government, which is, are you paying your taxes because government actually matters? And please pay attention to government because they actually have woken up and recognize that you people are not actually competitors. You're all working together to eliminate competition. Yeah. So, the, and, and if you think about a great company like Amazon, you know, Amazon has just one controlling weakness, which happens to be their controlling brilliance, which happens to be their founder, right? So Bezos is probably the world's best businessman, the world's best visionary, and the best world's best as- asset allocator. At the very same stage, he cannot get outside of himself that he's cheap. Right, he is the cheapest, richest man you've actually got in, in the world. Mm-hmm. And if he basically cared a little bit more about his employees, he wouldn't have the employee blowback of the warehouses. Mm-hmm. Right? If he actually paid taxes, Walmart and other remind people he doesn't pay taxes. It doesn't matter if he gives a hundred billion for education. If he paid his taxes, education wouldn't need money. Mm-hmm. Right? And, and, and on, on the other end of the social element of it is what are the ramifications, good or bad, of what he does. But in his particular case, you know, the actuality of it is he is going to have, as, by the way, Facebook does, right? So Facebook has a ES problem, not an ESG problem. Uh, They have have actually an ESG problem. They have a government problem with breaking them up. They have a society problem by basically menacing society with the weaponization of a degree, which they can easily with an algorithm cut, right? It's easy. They don't want to. It's not complicated. It's easy. I can do it. I can go and show them how to do it. So I know it's easy, right? And, but it'll impact some of their income. They're not willing to do that. And then they're beginning to have an employee problem because they're having problems attracting and retaining world-class engineers. Because they don't want to work for that brand because they don't like right. what it stands for. Right. So, so um, you know, I, I, had a, I had a friend who, who worked on a massive project for Facebook five years ago who, who, who surfaced all the issues about privacy and all the issues that now have come to the head. And no one wanted to take them up the food chain. They were too scared. Yeah. It's, it's, it's one of the reasons that I have a chapter in my book called The Turd on the Table. Yeah. Right. And my basic stuff is. If you don't listen to, if people don't speak truth to power and people don't listen, it will come to eventually bite bite you. It came to bite Wells Fargo. It came to bite Boeing. And make no mistake, it is going to bite Facebook because the amount of smoking guns that there is there, right, is shattering, shattering. And, you know, it's a company that has run like a cult, but suddenly they've stopped drinking Kool-Aid. And when a cult, you know, remember this. There's nothing who becomes a godlike believer like an atheist or the other way around. Yeah. So, so what, is, what does Wall Street not understand? Wall Street, keeps- Wall Street understands perfectly well two very simple things. Number one is on the near term, they are 
trying to figure out whether these companies will actually be broken up and it takes a long time. That's number one. But the more important thing is that if these companies are broken up, they are more valuable as a sum of the parts than as together. Yeah. But 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 um, it's almost like you've got, you, you know, you've got the, wi- <laughs> calling you the wizards, the wizards and the, the people who kind of see that, you know, the future gazers, who kind of can see the freight train coming to hit these brands? The, see, then, what they, yeah, so, so the, 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 the real freight train that's coming to hit the brands, I think the real medium to long-term risk for many of these companies is increased competition and a smarter uh, marketer. Right. So my basic belief is that these brands, if they really competed, they would not have the margins that they currently have. That in effect, when you look at someone like a Google that basically owns every element of the chain, they own the measurement, they own the bidding system, they own the distribution system, they own the inventory. That is not competition. That is basically self-dealing at scale. Mm-hmm. right which is regardless of what you basically say and the the reality of it is because the price is low to the consumer does not mean according and now you see you know with the the, the brandeis rules versus the chicago rules that uh, of of competition it 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 truly has affected what they've done is there's been a massive wealth transfer from the marketers of america to mm-hmm. these companies yeah uh, yeah, and now the marketers of America have woken up and it's not the CMOs that have woken up. It's the boards that have woken up. And for the last year and a half and two, I've been going to the boards and saying, pay attention, right? Yeah. This is a business disruption thing. This is not a communication and advertising issue you got. Mm. Yeah. So, um, you know, you, you see these companies and, and you see, you see these, um, you see, you see the threats, but the consumers don't walk away. And quarter right. after quarter after quarter, the numbers look better and better. And Wall Street—it's a sort of becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. It, 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 it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy, but you've got to recognize this: that at some particular stage, a business and a leader has to decide three simple things. Number one is what is the right thing to do if they're talking about ESG? That's number one. Number two is are they managing the business for the next year, next three years, or next five years plus, right? And the third is can they live with themselves? Those are three simple questions to ask, right? And none of those have to do with the numerics. There is something to do with the numerics. No marketer can stop using these platforms cold turkey. There's absolutely no way. What a marketer can do is build a five-year plan Mm -hmm. so that they are less reliant on these platforms and win back strategic optionality. Mm -hmm. And that requires a sustained effort from lobbying to break up these companies to working with other marketers to basically build additional ways to reach consumers 
to funding, even though it may be not as effective in the short run competitors like a Snap and a Pinterest and a TikTok, whoever it is, and doing everything possible to recognize that you are building a business for three to five years from now and not for three months from now. And under no circumstances should any company leave partnerships with these brands at anything but the board level. Yeah. This is not a CMO job anymore, unless the CMO is on the board. The CMO must be on the board, then it's the CMO's job. Otherwise, it's a board level job. Because it's about the future of the business, it's not about the future of a campaign. Yeah. Yeah, that's fascinating. Yeah, that's really, really interesting. So um, let's let's flip to the new breeder, the new breeder brands. We've got as much as um, we've got giants. We we've got we've we've got companies like Airbnb who've who've come in and and you know it's just just gone public. Um, you, you've got this whole new breed of brands that build their relationships directly with consumers. What 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 do we learn from from these new breeds and 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 why have they been successful? So some of them have been intensely successful, like I would say Airbnb, right? Netflix, I'd include as well, you know. And yeah. and Netflix. They they've been extremely successful. And they've been very successful because they have found a interesting way of satisfying what I call all elements of SAVE. So I basically believe that successful brands deliver on SAVE, which is safe. So S is they create a solution that I needed, but I didn't know I needed. Mm. Uh, A is it's extremely accessible. Mm. V is they deliver great value. And E is it's a great experience, mm -hmm. right? If you do all four, mm. you tend to succeed. And Netflix and Airbnb have done that. And they've also done that on something that people are underestimating. So the reason I'm a big believer in global versus local is because the world's best brands are only built globally, right? Netflix is most adventurous and adventuresome, both content and growth possibilities are outside the United States. Airbnb is the truly only really global and at the same time hyper local uh, hotel brand, yeah. you know, or uh, in, in the world. Yeah, but you know, in but a in, lot of others like a Casper and you know these five hundred IAB when IAB has their conferences, right? Yeah. All these things, all of those brands, most of them are irrelevant. Yep. They're going to basically go out of business or they're going to sucker some big analog company to overpay for them, right? Because the reality of it is you have to have something more than a direct-to-consumer relationship because the direct-to-consumer brands are no different than 550 beers you just mentioned. Yep. Yeah, no, absolutely right. But I think if you, if you, what is interesting to me is um, if you look at back in the day, the global brands came from the United States. It was almost like a second world war thing. Yeah. And, and they, 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 they were exporting American culture. So there was like, you know, you like Americans, you like the cheeseburger, 
you know, their initial their initial foray into global markets was about, you know, it's about selling Coca-Cola. It's about selling these iconic American brands with American values. But if you look at Netflix, Netflix is, you know, it's a, it's a new world where if you're going to succeed in, in the Italian market for Netflix, you better have three brilliant locally produced shows. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and, and those shows. Exactly. And, you know, some of the most popular shows, obviously, most recently were Queen's Gambit, which was produced here. But shows like Money Heist, right, which is produced in Spain or House of Flowers, which is produced in Mexico. I mean, at each of those, by the way, I first heard about it in my travels. So I would go to these countries. And one of the things I always ask my hosts is, can you tell me what's the best cultural things that I can participate in? And and one of the things I would ask is, what do you watch on Netflix? Because I knew that I could access that either directly or through a VPN mm -hmm. from mm -hmm. where I got to, right? Mm -hmm. and, and, and it's amazing how that has actually happened. And I remind people, and this is very hard for us who live here, and I, because I am an immigrant and always have an immigrant's mindset, um, the, it's very difficult for us to live here to recognize that the entire Western world, which includes parts of Eastern Europe, Canada, and the United States, accounts for only 12% of the world's population. Okay. And increasingly is accounting for the just, as I tell people, if you just take China and what was British India, okay, so British India includes Bangladesh, Pakistan, and you include, if you look at that, we're looking at 40% of the world's population in two countries and approximately 35% of the world's growth. And those two countries are not going to hanging around for the Americans to decide their future. Yeah. So that brings me to an interesting conversation again that I had recently. Um, that that requires a lot of a, a different breadth of thinking, you know, to 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 the, the the natural inclination of a lot of US companies was our market is big enough here. Um obviously obviously this this has changed in the last decade, but um the the need to be open-minded, the need to embrace, the need to understand. Now we've got to a point and I, I'm interested to hear your point of view on this because you know you you were so much part of uh, you know trying to understand where digital was going, um, and you now got to, you now got to a point where the digit the Chinese digital ecosystem is so sophisticated. Um, and but but what do we learn from that? And 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 how do you how do you sort of um, stop the response, which was, oh, that's China. It has nothing to do with us. So, you know, the, 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 the two or three things of it. One is there are whole parts of the United States that are increasingly third world-like. Uh, payments is third world-like. Increasingly, highways are third world-like. Increasingly, retail is third world-like. And you don't have to go to China. You can go to Scandinavia, right? You can go to New Zealand. You can mm -hmm. go to parts of Australia. Mm -hmm. um, for, for, 
you know, financial transactions, you can end up in Nigeria and, you know, you can see things. The, the issue really is the, the most amazing thing about the United States, and I am continuing to be a big fan of the United States and I live here and I'm a citizen, is that you could be anything you wanted and it was so big that you could reinvent yourself in any way possible. All you had to do was keep going west, okay? All right, so I would tell everybody in America, if you wanna reinvent yourself like you did, please keep going west. But this time, you have to go west of California. And when you go west of California, you end up in Asia. And I have a very simple fix for the problems of the United States government. Let me tell you what the fix is. Every single person in Congress and the Senate needs to spend two weeks in China and India. Come back, they won't be like the way they are. Mm -hmm. Over and out, right? Mm -hmm. It's because what we do not have is people, they're not silly people, they're not stupid people, they're not bad people. But you cannot know what you don't know. But what they basically become is very insular people. And I am a big believer that the only way you grow is by being open to new ideas and new thoughts. Mm -hmm. Because openness is a, is a key ingredient to growth. Mm -hmm. And there has been a closing and the closing has backfired. Let's look at the two countries that tried their hardest to close. So Britain wanted to exit from Europe. Now Europe wants nothing to do with Britain. The United States wanted to build a wall. Now everybody wants the US not to go to Canada or Mexico. So as Robert Frost basically said, I would like to ask when I'm building a wall, Am I walling someone in? I'm walling someone out. Mm -hmm. And I always remind people when they say, you know, they cannot get into red velvet parties. I said, that's fine. They're just roping themselves in. You mm -hmm. are the future. They mm -hmm. are the past. Anybody who ropes around and doesn't let you in means they've become incestuous and are finished. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's, 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 re that's really interesting. Um, so, so you, you, you know, you, the whole idea of that metaphor around openness and closing and this idea that curiosity, you know, it, it's, um, you know, we see it in our industry where, where people have, you know, I think one of the biggest challenges is not so much technology, it's the people. Um, it's it is the people. It, it is the culture. It's the reason why you know, the last piece I wrote was it's about the people change, you know, it's, you know it's, it was, and that resonated a lot. I mean, recent, my last four pieces have resonated a lot. And I, I realized that because I hear from, because I know who's subscribing to my news that most of the time I do some obviously subscribe with Anonymous. false names or with very strange QQQ. So, but sometimes I recognize. And so the only information I have of anybody is their email address. Right. And and so I've now figured out that I have approximately a hundred CEOs of companies. Wow. Okay. I have a thousand C level executives. Mm -hmm. And in less than now it's about five months, issue twenty will come out. So I started August sixteenth. From August sixteenth to today, today is when I crossed my five thousand subscriber. Wow. Right. Neat. But what's very interesting is my average readership for any piece is now 15,000. 
right? And there are two reasons for it. One is because the subscribers pass it along to people and the subscribers post it too, right? And then the other is because I post it directly. So you can, I post it on LinkedIn and Facebook and Twitter, right? And so a combination of my posting and that being passed along and people forwarding and posting along basically has now allowed me to speak to 15,000 people every week for eight minutes. Right. Uh, and that's another thing I try to explain to marketers, which is, by the way, I'm running all of this without anybody but myself. Right. So I'm scaling, I'm creating, I'm doing nothing. And I don't need any of all, I don't need 555 people telling me what to do, or how to do it. And I said, this is the modern world we're living in. So are you, you, and I said, and by the way, this was part of me being open to something very simple. I began to realize that some of my favorite writers in magazines were leaving. And I said, where are they going? So they were going to this thing called Substack. So I said, what the hell is a Substack, right? And I said, oh, I got to learn Substack. Now, obviously I don't have their capabilities nor their needs, so I don't charge anything, right? But but in fact, I learned Substack and all of a sudden I've created an asset, which is a direct relationship with a lot of people that I speak to. And, and my whole stuff is, and by the way, I've gone around and I've gone around Facebook and Twitter and LinkedIn because on Facebook, they don't like Substack. So they don't let me post Substack. So I hide, find ways to post it, but I don't get any things from them. And so I explain to marketers, look, they can squeeze you. I'm going around them. Why can't you go with all your multi-billion dollar budgets? I have no budget. And that is waking them up. Yeah, there's a, I might send you this little video link. I, I think it's, it's illustrative of the future of creativity. It's basically this kid who knows Twitch inside and right. out. Yeah. And, and what he does is he creates some merchandise because he knows the lingo. He creates baseball caps and T-shirts. And and you watch him do it in real time, and he's and he's going to Shopify. Every he doesn't need to. The level of creativity that he requires is minimal. It's it, 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 amazing. And the other thing is like talking about Twitch and a whole bunch of other things. I asked people. Look, I said, look, I go onto Twitch, and I begin to realize how, you know, outside of having two grown-up daughters who remind me how stupid I am all the time, besides my wife, what also keeps me, you know from thinking too highly of myself, which I don't anyway, but you know, sometimes you can get high on yourself, is I go and try to hang out at the Twitches, et cetera, of the world, and I understand nothing, yeah. right? Nothing. And I'm sitting there trying my darndest, right? And my whole stuff is, oh my God, I don't know what the hell's going on. Like, I don't even understand the emoticons where I don't, can't, don't right. understand the lingo. So, so you, we've, got, uh, we've got this other whole movement, which is, which is towards these... As much as we've got these big behemoth, bigger than ever institutions, we've also got a massive hyperfragmentation of the means of production and in a way that we've never seen. The fact that a kid who, who knows the language of Twitter, who knows the characters in a matter of hours can create a merchandise line and start making dollars like that is incredible. It, it is incredible. And here's the biggest thing. So today I was listening to a podcast uh, from, a, from, a, from a gentleman who, who, who's a financial person. And, you know, he said something obvious, which we all know, but he said every individual today has a, 
addressable market of 3 billion people, which is everybody who carries a smartphone, yeah. right? And if they're willing to pay between 10 and 30% of their revenues, they can access this particular addressable market. Uh, because it's some combination of either app store fees, AWS fees, Substack fees, you know, Shopify, Shopify. fees, right? Yeah. You, you, and by the way, you in almost every case, you pay after you've earned the revenue. So you don't need all, for, for many companies who aren't in AI and other kinds of like making, you know, semiconductors, you don't need huge amounts of capital to start. You start and you can fund yourself and you just hand out a third of your money, which obviously a lot of people are complaining, which is too high, but you can address 3 billion people. And that is the thing. And then you can scale that really fast, right? Like, and, and, and so I'm sitting there fascinated. And my whole thing is, it's one of the reasons why in one of my posts, I, or one of my stuff, I said, everybody should now start operating, even if they're working in a large company, yeah. like pretending that they're a company of one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? Really because it, it really, when you begin to think about yourself as a company of one, you get very innovative, even if you're in a company of 80,000. Yeah. So um, I know, and I'm conscious of time. I just want to, I want to kind of uh, get your thoughts on on 2021. Um, do you, what do you believe is the biggest takeaway from pandemic that will will keep with us? I believe that we are have entered the great reinvention. So. You know, some people have called it the great pause, the great acceleration. Uh, I believe it's the great reinvention. Um, and that is because people's habits and behaviors are likely to change uh, in ways that we cannot anticipate. In some cases, they're going to change where I believe, for instance, uh, personal travel, once it's safe to travel, will probably be greater than it's ever been before. On the other hand, business travel may be a third to half of what it's been before. Uh, because when someone stops or starts doing something for three months, their behavior changes. Yeah. So that's, so, and, and as a result, there's gonna be this great reinvention because as people's behaviors have changed, that's number one. Number two is everyone is going to basically stop having to think about the new normal, but stop thinking about the new strange, mm -hmm. right? And the third is anybody who's running a company shouldn't think about restarting their business, but starting anew. Because to me, the single biggest change because of COVID is that it is intersecting with a technology shift that's happening at the same time, which I call the third connected age. So the last time we had this, we had the second connected age. The first connected age was when we connected to transacted, connected to search, 1994. The second one in 2007, eight and nine, was when we were connected to everybody and connected all the time because of social and mobile. But around then we had the Great Recession. General Motors and Ford coming out of it went back to doing business as usual, but Uber and Tesla were born then. So similarly now, because of AI, 5G, voice and cloud, plus the behaviors of COVID, I strongly recommend everybody I talk to, think about if you were to start again, what would you start recognizing these modern technologies and behaviors? Even if you've got a company of 100,000, think about what you would do and then start doing those because otherwise someone is going to come and clean you up for breakfast or eat you for breakfast. 
That's great stuff. I really enjoyed the uh, the time we spent chatting. Thank you so thank much you. for the time. I'm wishing you a very happy holidays. Likewise. And, thank uh, you. Thank um, you very much. And let me know when you post this and I will reshare it. Thank you so much. Thank uh, you. Have a great holiday. You too. Bye-bye. Bye. This is your host, Ed Cotton. Thank you so much for listening to Inspiring Futures. Until next time.